Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August the 1st, 2017. This is episode 2055 of the Survival Podcast. And it's, did you hear that? It's August 1st. July is gone. We have five more months left in the year. Doesn't that sound weird? Doesn't that sound... We have five more months in 2017. We have five more months until it will be 2018. And you know what happens, right? Like, August kind of drags a bit because it's hot and it doesn't rain much and it's the end of summer. And if you live in, like, parts of the country that still have their head straight on about school vacation, the kids are out all through August. Like, down here, they're sending them back to school in, like, two weeks or something like that. Something stupid. I, I don't get it. Um, but August kind of drags. September, you start getting into some hunting season stuff. It starts to cool off a bit. And it's like October, November, December. It just goes last three. That last quarter just tumbles And next thing you know, you're looking at a whole new year. I know it sounds crazy sitting here in the heat of summer to talk about this, but you know why I do it. You know why I do it from time to time. Tick-tock, tick-tock. The clock ticks for us all. You're either working on your independence and liberty and individual education and all the things in your life that matter, or you're not. And if you're not, then life's working against you. The only way that life can work for you is you got to be moving forward on your goals in life. And if you're not doing it, you're not doing it right, guys. I'm sorry, you just aren't. There's no sliding scale in life. Either you're moving forward or life's moving you backward. It's up to you. We're not going to talk about anything deep like that today, though. I, I don't have it in me, and I needed something fun to talk about today, so I decided to talk about fishing again. I'm calling today's show Fishing from Bar Ditches to Big Water and Everything in Between. I won't get real technical. A few technical things here and there in today's show about what to do and, and matching fish debate and stuff like that. But really, I'm going to talk just more about the overall thing, like... You know, why we intend to enjoy fishing as humans. And, and what's wrong if you say you don't like fishing? Like, what that probably means. It probably doesn't mean what you think it means. How, how to find places to fish. Uh, I'm going to give you some of my go-to rods and reels for, like, everyday stuff. I'm going to tell you some fishing stories and techniques developed from 35 years of fishing. And if I did the math, it's probably more than that, because that would put me at 10. And I definitely started fishing, including on my own, before I was 10 years old. So... I don't know, it's really more like 38, 39 years, something like that. But 35 is a good round number that we'll use for today. I'll tell you about things today like fishing with flowers and minnows in a bread bag and clearing out Jacksonville Beach with uh, sharks as a 10-year-old and a bunch of other cool, fun stuff. I'm going to tell you about some of the new electronics that are going in my boat and what they can do. And it'll be kind of a, a dichotomy today almost, like of these really low-tech things all the way to some of the more modern, high-tech things that anglers can use to put more fish in the boat or into the freezer. And I'll talk at the end about why I love both the high- and low-tech components of fishing. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you know I love to cook. And my go-to source for spices, seasoning, sauces, and information is Chef Keith Snow's site, HarvestEating.com. Give Chef Keith a try, and you'll see why I use his products at least a few times every single week in my own kitchen. You can learn more at harvesteating.com. 
TSPBusiness.com. Hey, would you like to do business with other members of the TSP community? If so, check out the TSP Business Directory, the place for our listeners to promote their businesses or find great products and services from other community members. Check there first when you need something, and remember to leave a review when you do business with a member. The directory is all about trust and value for value exchange. Check out TSPBiz.com, that's TSPBiz.com, to learn more. Before we get into today's show, let's take a look at the year that was, the year in this case that was the year 35 A.D. I have two today, one from Southpaw Ben and one from David Verne. From Southpaw Ben, I have Tyridates III becomes king of the Parthian Empire. The Parthian nobles rebelled against their king this year. Then they asked Tiberius to to return Tyridates, who had been a hostage in Rome. Royal and noble hostages were exchanged during this time period as a means of insurance that treaties and similar agreements would be obeyed. The Parthian Empire was centered around what today is Iran. My take by Southpaw Ben. Unfortunately for Tyridates, his reign will only last one year, as his constituents will see him as a vassal to Rome, This is because he was educated in Rome while a hostage and brought a, brought a Roman military advisor with him to help complete the overthrow of Artbanus III, which was the correct choice militarily, but turned out to be a fatal mistake politically. So king for not a day, but king for a year? Doesn't sound like a good way to go. Also, I have this uh, for this year the first Christian martyr from David Verne. Stephen was the first of seven deacons appointed by twelve apostles, the closest followers and friends of Jesus. The deacons were appointed to assist with distributing food and charity to the poor. Stephen gets into a debate with the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of the Jews. He denounces them as being stiff-necked and declared that Jesus was standing at the right hand of God. The Sanhedrin and the crowd cry out at what they saw as blasphemy and stoned him to death. He is the first Christian martyr. My take by David Verne. Jesus was executed by the Sanhedrin and the high priest because he was disruptive politically. The Jews had been able to have more autonomy than most other promises, and the Jewish leaders feared that any loss of face would cause them to lose power and thus give more to Rome. They thought they took care of the problem when they executed Jesus, but the apostles continued to spread Christianity. You can kill a person, but it's impossible to kill an idea. That's the one I'd like to give you my thought on today. Just that final piece. You can kill a person, but it's impossible to kill an idea. This is a double-edged sword. This is a double-edged sword. Because for every good idea that becomes an entity onto itself, that becomes a legacy, that drives humanity forward, there's almost like an equal number of really bad ideas that become so powerful that they overpower the mind and people cling to them or people will die to defend or protect them even though they're bad ideas. You could see that with the thing like when somebody says taxes theft and people flip their shit over it, right? They can't even have an intellectual debate about it. They're what the social justice warriors call triggered. They're triggered by it. I'm so triggered by this. I can't believe that. And it usually goes something along the lines of, well, we have to have taxes from the roads, blah, 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 invisible social contract, and if you don't like it, move to Somalia. And that's because the idea that this is the only way that things can be done is so ingrained in people, the concept that there just might be another way is seen as blasphemy and requires a a response in anger. Requires a response and anger. But the good news is that good ideas also can take this form and become an idea whose time has come and that won't die and won't go away. See, I think that's where we are with taxes theft. 
I think tax theft is beginning to take that on. That people are beginning to realize that it is wrong to take other people's stuff by force and coercion. And even if we don't have all the answers as to how would we yet, we owe it to ourselves morally to start asking the questions of how can we with as much as possible as quickly as possible, not because it's political speak, not because it's expedient to get elected under some marketing campaign of being for small government, but because it's the morally right thing to do. If there is any way to solve society's problems as well or better than the current method that also doesn't steal from people, do we not have a moral imperative to try? That's a very difficult argument to, 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 to contend with. It's very difficult to just make go away with that hominin attacks or move to Somalia or I have to have roads and schools. Because the question then begins to say, can we just admit that taking other people's stuff without their consent is wrong? And though we haven't been able to figure out how to do these things up till now by other means, isn't it a moral imperative that we try? Try that the next time you're trying to speak to a statist who wants to put their fingers in their ear and go blah, 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 social contract, blah, 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 Somalia. Because it doesn't require that everything be done now, only that that first step be taken. And all great journeys begin with that first step. My thoughts by Jack Spierko. Hey folks, I just want to say, any of you that are or ever have been an MSB or Member Support Brigade member of the Survival Podcast, I really appreciate you. Without you, I could not bring this show to you Monday through Friday, five days a week. You are the primary means by which we're able to deliver this programming and to live the lives that allow us to teach the things we do here at the Survival Podcast. But of course, you know me, I'm not about charity. This is not some kind of membership like on uh, public broadcasting where we send you a $4 tote bag in return for a $100 uh, donation and call it a donation. This is a value-for-value value exchange. You'll get discounts to over 60 companies. You'll get a lot of other great content that's available nowhere else. And you'll get every episode of the Survival Podcast that's ever been produced in convenient zip files. You can download them all. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. Scroll to the bottom to see our different methods of payment, and we'd love to have you supporting our show. It comes out to about 18.3 cents an episode. So let's start out. Again, I want to do kind of a fun and easygoing show today. I, I'm kind of sick of politics and economics and with people being screwed over by the state. It's not that that stuff's going to go away, but we can just take a freaking break from it, and I want to do that today. And, you know, fishing is one of those things that's pretty universal, and, and everybody can learn to enjoy it and have an opportunity to enjoy it. I, I know they make you buy a license for it, but those are pretty cheap, and, you know, there's ways around that, too, just saying. And if you're not a person that, like, if right now if you're thinking, I don't really know if I want to hang out for the whole episode today with Jack. Not a fisherman, don't plan on fishing. Let me kind of tell you what. I, I promise you, if you listen to today's show, I'll make you laugh a few times at least. And I'll tell you some things, and you'll know some things you didn't know. Okay? And then the other thing is, I generally find there's two types of people when it comes to fishing. First, there are people that love it, and then you don't have to explain any more about that. And second, there are people who have yet to try a method of it that they love. Seriously, so many people I talk to don't like fishing. They say things like, it's boring. My response is, you don't know how to fish. right? If, if, if it's that boring, you're doing it wrong. right? Uh, it's too hot. Well, don't go out when it's too hot or find a shady spot or something. right? It's too expensive. You're doing it wrong. There's cheap ways to fish and actually have a lot of fun. Uh, I can't find a place to fish. response to that would be, well, tune in today's show. We're going to tell you all, all about that. Right? Saying you, you don't like fishing to me is like saying, I don't like beer. 
you just haven't found your brand or style yet. It's like it's like saying I don't like food. Like it's because it's an imperative that we eat. Eventually, we all find foods that we like. But see, fishing's not something we have to do, or drinking beer is not something we have to do. So a lot of people they try one or two varieties and go, eh, I don't know, it's not really for me. Well, you know. I think if you handle dating that way, you might as well become a monk, right? If the first couple dates don't work out, I'm like, see, you see what I'm saying? Um, you see, fishing can range from sitting in the shade with a line in the water, enjoying a beverage, and almost hoping nothing bites to disturb your peace and quiet, to something like a wilderness adventure where hiking in is the hardest thing you do on the entire trip. And I've done both, and, and they're both very rewarding to me. My wife said often that she didn't like fishing. But one day, when we had moved back to Pennsylvania for a few years, I introduced her to a small river that I fished growing up as a teenager. It was full of smallmouth bass, and it changed everything. I mean, once I had her standing in crystal clear moving water that was about thigh deep, and an old pair of worn-out shoes and cutoffs on a July day, and she was catching 100-plus bronze backs a day, um, that changed everything for her. To the point where I was the one saying, okay, it's time to go. And she was the one responding with, wait, one more cast. And I think if my wife can learn to enjoy certain types of fishing, then anybody can. Because, boy, this girl was not a fisher girl when I first met her. But, boy, on that day, she was willing to put those big old slimy worms on the hook all by herself once she got into a couple of those, those smallmouth bass because it was so much fun. Today I want to talk about fishing in a variety of ways, how to find some spots to fish, what to try simply to get started, And even a bit about the advanced electronics being installed in my boat. And I'm going to tell you, there's some automation going on there, which we've been talking about a lot lately. But let's start out with something. Why do humans tend to enjoy fishing? Now, again, I, I know that kids that were dragged fish, like if you, that's your experience, like you didn't want to go and your dad drug you when you were a little kid and thought, shh, be quiet, the fish can hear you, which, by the way, unless you're banging around in a boat or something, is a lie. Don't worry about it. You can talk when you fish. Um, unless, you know, if that's how it started out, maybe that's why you don't like fishing. You should give another shot. But I think there's some really, like, three key things that make people enjoy fishing. First, I believe there's a primal drive. I believe the human being is a hunter-gatherer. You can take the hunter-gatherer, you can take away his animal skins, you can put him in a suit, you can sit him in a chair with proper back posture, put him in a cubicle and stick a keyboard in front of him, and inside his heart still beats the caveman's heart. The, the, the human being grew and evolved on this planet to exist with it, and within it as a part of it, not a part from it. We are supposed to be a part of the world, not a part from the world. And you can leave your religion at the door if it's banging any of your things there, because I'm not talking about it that way. I'm not talking about worldly possessions. In fact, this actually is more Buddhist than anything else, because if we are a part of the natural world, then we become far less attached to all the manufactured things around us. And I believe there's a primal drive in people. That that's why when you go out to pick stuff out of your own garden, but you find that one really perfectly red strawberry, you get like, you know, this this really great feeling because that's that's part of the other thing, which is the reward factor. And I think the reward factor and the primal drive go the same way. And 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 the human mind has been tuned in to to get a mental reward from finding something that will give you physical solace. 
So when you're out looking for berries and you find those really great berries, whether it's in a garden or whether it's a wild patch, there's a part of your mind that knows this is nourishment. And it sends a dopamine, this has actually been scientifically studied, a dopamine level reward. And the same is true of hunting and fishing. The thing about fishing is I think it's a lot more approachable to a lot of people. One can fish without killing. Though sooner or later, you're going to end up killing a fish. Not even, even if you don't decide you want to take it home and eat it, you're going to gut hook something, something's going to, you know, something's going to happen. But, you know, you don't have to kill fish. You can go out and catch 100 fish in a day and let every one of them go and they all live. It happens all the time. Um, so, it, it, so a lot of times people have this, this kind of holding back at actually killing something. And then the other thing is flat out fish just don't tend to have the personality that a deer or an elk does. So a lot of people that would never go out and hunt deer or elk and shoot it, you know, will catch a few bass and have no problem, even if it's somebody else that throws the fillet knife to them and gets some good quality meat off of them. Because that's also primal. The concept of going out and getting something that can nourish you. Primal and directly connected to the, the reward center. And then expanding on the reward center is when you're fishing, you really never know what's going to happen. There's always that possibility that you're out there catching those small fish, and that line's going to go and you set the hook and you hear, and there's something big on there. Or that you're going to pull something out of the water that you've never seen before that's not supposed to be there. You know, like some big giant paku that some idiot took out of his aquarium and dumped into Lake Louisville. The guy caught like a 16-pound one of those out of Lake Louisville um, about 10 years ago. What's well, a paku? Paku is a tropical fish that's not a piranha, but it looks like a lot like a piranha. It doesn't cause the problems of a piranha, but it looks like a piranha, and it gets a hell of a lot bigger. So this dude thought he had like a 16-pound piranha. Like, you just, you don't know. You don't know what's going to be there. When you, you know, when you fish in lakes, there's somewhat of a limit, but you still don't know. There could still be that one big fish in there. Recently, I was fishing in a tiny little pond. I mean, it's just, it might be a half acre of water, probably more like a third of an acre in a little park in, in uh, White Settlement, Texas. I was catching bullheads for my aquaponic system, and you know, I was catching like four to eight inches. And I hooked into one that was almost three pounds. That's a massive bullhead. It's a black bullhead, so they get a lot bigger than that. But it's that's a big bullhead. And when I hooked into it, it was that that immediate like, wow, what is this? First, I was like, it, it, it was moving too fast. I knew what a turtle because I don't expect it to be. I didn't expect anything that big to be in that lake. But when you get out, like just just surf fishing, just go to the beach where everybody swims and find a place where there's not too many people in the water and throw a dead piece of shrimp in on the end of a line out there. You have no idea. I've been doing that, you know, looking to catch little whiting and stuff like that. And next thing you know, you have a 16-pound, 20-pound snook on the end of the line, ripping ass through the surf and jumping on its tail across the waves. And it's the fact that you just don't know. You can go fishing a hundred times and nothing really exciting happens. Maybe you don't even catch that many fish. And then that one time, something, something burns a memory into your mind forever. One of mine is, and it's just a trash fish. It was a ladyfish. Which it's a saltwater fish. If you don't know much about it, it's fine. But just understand that unless you need it for bait, nobody really is excited about catching a ladyfish. But my wife and I and my son, this is quite a few years ago, we're at Sanibel Island. And it was about six in the morning, and I get up, and of course they're not moving yet. I go down to the beach, and we're sitting like, they're just off the beach of this hotel we stay at. And I go down there, and I've got my cooler with some cut bait and some shrimp in it. 
and I'm fishing, and the it looks like a lake. The Gulf of Mexico looks like a lake. It's barely rippling. It's so calm. It's at what's called slack tide, which is kind of in between high and low tides when the tides are shifting. Actually, I would say it's like it's already become high tide, and it hadn't started to go out yet. That's where it was. And it can have that low tide and high tide, both, where you've kind of come to that resting point between the tides. So it was like that. And it looked just crystal blue. And I caught a few fish here and there, and I saw something kind of boil, and I bolted out that line. And I kind of, since it was top water and I was fishing with bait, I kind of skipped it across the water a bit by holding a rod up high. And bam, this fish hit it. It was a ladyfish. She was about, oh, 18 inches long. And they're like a ribbon. They're really thin. But they're, they're shimmering silver. And the sun was just coming up above the buildings behind me by now and coming straight out across the water. The sun hit that fish and it looked like a flexible mirror glaring in the sun as it walked on its tail across, across the water. It was a perfect moment. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know when you're going to have that one moment that even when you're an old man and you've lost half your memories, if somebody says ladyfish, you'll go, oh, there was this one time. That's what makes it so special, and that's why humans enjoy it. And if you haven't found that joy in it yet, give it a shot. And it might start out a little slow until you figure things out and figure out what does it for you. But there's always that possibility. There's always that thing that can happen that maybe is not even about a big fish or a special fish. It's just a special moment. So one of the things I find is people have a lot of trouble finding places to fish. And primarily I have three methods, four methods that I use to find places to fish. The first and most important one is just pay attention and look around. This is what you call basic situational awareness. People drive by places that are actually places you could fish on a daily basis and never notice it. If you're driving down the road and there's like an overpass looking thing and there's like a place where cars pull out and you can tell that cars routinely pull out there, even though when you look down as you drive by, you can't really see anything down there, there very well might be a creek or a river or something like that with fish in it. And if you constantly see cars in a place like that, you know, one day just stop for five minutes and check it out. And generally people fish in places where there's fish, so that would be, you know, one example like that. But a lot of times if you just look around, you'll see, you know, there's a pond somewhere or whatever. And, and sometimes it's on private land, but if the, the house is accessible, like you can get to the front door without going through a gate or something, a lot of times just for asking, people will let you fish. A lot of times they'll tell you to go piss off, but it never hurts to ask. But just start paying attention. Start looking. If you see a place where cars park often, then there's a lot of times the reason for that is fishing. And sometimes that's not as obvious you as you would think. There was a place I used to fish in Pennsylvania called Clark's Valley. And it had a really, Clark's, Clark's Creek ran through Clark's Valley, as you might imagine. And it was, it was a stocked creek. The state of Pennsylvania stocked it. But if you drove down Clark's Valley Road, there is nothing that would tell you that this is a place to go fishing. Unless you drove through there during trout season in the middle of stocking. Because then you'd see cars and cars and cars and cars parked all along the road. But even through the summer when all of the, you know, the, the Sunday anglers that only fish during the season when it's easy in the spring, right when they're being dumped in, when all those people go home and it's the holdovers and the smart ones that made it, you'd still, you know, you'll see a car here and a car there pulled out. You're in the middle of nowhere. There's a reason for that. 
So pay attention and look around. Next is, and I think this has become my go-to beyond just looking around, Google Maps and Earth, which is another form of looking around. What I'll usually do is I'll pull up an area on Google Maps, and I'll just start kind of moving around in it and zooming in and looking for, you know, it shows bodies of water is blue. And once you find that body of water of blue, then you can zoom in, tight on it, and switch to the satellite view and kind of get a better understanding of what it is. And I found probably six places this year that even though other people know about them, they're not super secret or anything. A couple of them actually kind of are. I've never seen anybody else there. Um, but, you know, several of the others are things that are well-known, little parks and stuff. But there's just like... If you Google like places to fish in Azel or places to fish in, in, in White Settlement, Texas, you don't find these places. No one really talks about it. It's not seen as a big deal. It's little neighborhoods that people fish in and stuff like that. But they're publicly accessible. You know, this is the same type of thing. You look for places where you see, you know, that blue line going under a road. Most of the time, if there's an overpass or a bridge or something, there's a place that you can pull out. That road easement is public. And that means you can go down to those locations and fish. And in many states, check your own regulation. I think it's all states, but check locally yourself. My understanding is that if you can put a boat in that water and it's navigable, in other words, I can put a kayak in there and row up and down it, anywhere that I go, is even if it goes through somebody's private property, as long as it's navigable, then it is it's publicly accessible. You can't block a public waterway, even if you own land on both sides of it. And now you got to be careful with that because, like, if, if you're wearing hip boots and dragging your freaking boat because there's a hole or two, I don't think that plays. I mean, the boat has to legitimately be able to go through it. But if something as small as a kayak can go up and down it, it's a public waterway, at least in Texas it is. So by looking for these different spots, zooming in and finding where's the publicly accessible space, and then just go check those places out. And you don't always need to fish them to check them out. Sometimes, like, you don't have time to do all that, but I'm going to be in that part of town today. Okay, yeah, I'm going to make a little note and a reminder, and I'm going to mark that spot in Google Maps, You know, find an address close to it. I'm going to go and just say navigate there. I'm going to go check it out. Just see what it looks like. You know, and if, the, the, the problem with a lot of people that fish is their pigs, right? And, and I always try to pick up garbage and stuff to a degree when I'm fishing out of place. But, you know, when you go to a place and you see, like, an old box of worms sitting there or something like that, somebody fishes there. And then it's a matter of figuring out what kind of fish are in there, what are the patterns like there, Where's the cover? What's accessible? What isn't? What's going to work? What's not? But at least you have a place to start. And I find most people said there's no place for me to go fishing. If they took 30 minutes on Google Earth and just started paying attention when they drove around, they could probably find two or three or four spots. Now, if you live in the middle of the desert, I'll give it to you. Okay, I understand. But for most people in this country that live in the more temperate climates of the country, there's somewhere that you can fish. And there's probably for... 80% of America, just based on the demographics of where people live, within two hours you're on a coastline. And that's always another option. I love, I just love surf fishing. Even when I don't do great as far as catching fish, I don't care. I spend a day at the beach drinking beer and playing in the water. I just happen to have a pole in my hand. And most times we do catch quite a bit of fish when we do that. So that's one way, Google, Earth, Earth and Maps. Next is talk to people, stores, bait shops, Anywhere you go. When you're talking to people that are local to your area, and you start talking about what you do, and I'll go, do you fish? A lot of them will go, no. Oh, okay. If they say yes, you go, where do you fish? 
a lot of times, you know, you start talking to fellow fishermen, they'll tell you things that they wouldn't post publicly on an internet forum, which is what we'll get to next. Recently, I, I bought some really cool electronics for my boat at Cabela's, and I got some really good intel on where to fish for catfish on Eagle Mountain Lake, which is my home lake now. And the guy that was there, he said, oh, so it, what actually happened there was like, so I had to order the motor because it wasn't in stock. And uh, when I went to order the motor with him, he saw the address. He goes, oh, you're in Azle. I'm like, yeah, kind of, sort of, like right out there. He goes, so you're close to Eagle Mountain Lake. I'm like, yeah. He's like, me and my buddy are just killing blues and channel cats out there. I'm like, really, where? And he told me, you know, up, upper end of the lake, a couple different spots to check out, baits to use. Just gave me that information. Now, I can guarantee you he's not about to go on Texas Fishing Forum and post GPS coordinates of where he's catching fish. Because you would not either. Because you don't want tons of people moving in on like that. And even if it's not going to be as many people as you would think, you don't want to invite that. But one-on-one, -on -one, a lot of times people are very forthcoming about places, or at least kind of general areas that you can go fish. So talk to people, baits, doors, you know, what have you. doesn't matter. If, if it's any place remotely related to fishing, talk to them. When you're, you know, standing around and looking for stuff at a, at a sporting goods store, and there's someone next to you look for something, like, ask them, like, what are you looking for? Because you might know where it is. Because you know what it's like when you're like, where the hell is it? But if you bought it, oh, it's right over here. Oh, what are you fishing for? Well, what do you normally fish for? Most fishermen are, are happy to have those conversations. If they're not, you know, wish them a good day and let it go. But talking to people has probably been my number three source of information for finding places to fish. Number four is forums and online. But I have the lowest results of all from them because of what I said. People generally don't want to say, hey, you know, right now, if you go up on the riprap of the dam at, you know, so-and-so lake and go about 18 feet down from the intake, the channels are right up in the rocks spawning. And if you fish 18 inches down with a bobber, um, you know, using a punch bait, we're slaughtering them there right now. Because in their head, whether it's going to happen or not, what they're seeing is 50 boats in their little honey hole. So you'll generally get vague advice Or people will be happy to point you in the direction of a guide for a lake or something like that. But you won't find generally a lot of information about bank fishing spots, which is what a lot of people are looking for. Or spots that you can fish with like canoes, kayaks, small john boats with just a trolling motor and things like that, ponds. And if you are getting information about the larger lakes and, and stuff like that, you're not going to get specifics. Or if you're getting information about the surf, you're not going to get specifics of exactly what part of the beach or something like that. Because fishermen kind of like a little bit of solitude. But you know there's always a but with me. So I view online forums. It's just an extension of offline activity. And there's different types of relationships in forums. There's you know barely existent relationships. This is you just made a couple posts on this forum and you're reading around and no one really knows you yet. There's kind of like, oh, we know his handler, his name by now, and he's okay. And there's, oh, this is a person that's contributed a lot over time and I see them as a valued member of the community. And what you'll find with that is, you know that whole thing about the channel cats and 18 inches of water and they're in the riprap and they're hitting the punch base? Not only did I get that information, I got two sets of G GPS coordinates on my old Lake of Joe Pool from the Texas Fishing Forum, but a guy didn't post it in the thread. He private messaged me and say, hey, hey Jack, um, yeah, we were just killing them, my, my, my daughters and me, and, the, and he gave me these specifics and said, from my notes last year, you got about three weeks left where these fish are going to be in this spot. 
because he knows I'm not going to turn around and post that publicly. He knows that even though I have a, you know, a show like this, I'm not going to go and tell you guys exactly where that is. Right? Not that most of you would even care. But there's going to be some level of quality control in who that information is passed on to. And that people generally don't fish a spot 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So if you know a couple dozen people know about a spot and it's used seasonally, it's not that big a deal. So if you're going to use forums and online, it's lead with the relationship, which I think is true of all things with forums online. And it's not any different really than like if you get involved with like a chamber of commerce. When I was, you know, back in my, you know, mainstream business days, I was a member of the, the Plano and Richardson Chambers of Commerce. And I was the Frisco Chamber of Commerce. And I was on a technology business council for the Richardson Chamber and things like that. And after a while, people would start saying, well, how can I help you? But in the beginning, all you are is fodder for every time they kick a table, like 20 real estate agents and 17 financial advisors run out from underneath them, and, and they want to know how they can help you, but they really can't help you. But they just want an appointment with you to talk about selling your house or investing your money or something like that. It takes a while to get, like, get in with the people that actually have access to the things that you're looking for, and it's a matter of you appearing like someone that's actually committed to what the organization is doing, a good standing member of the community. Now, you don't go do that to gain. You go do that because you found a community that works for you and it's the right thing to do, and you gain as a, as a result of that, if that makes sense. It's like if you run a business right, then the money will take care of itself. You don't sit around worrying about the money. And it, it's the same type of thinking. And, and if you're going to be successful getting information from forums and stuff, that's going to be best. Now, you can get some very generic, useful information from forums. That place sucks. You know, usually it's the truth. Sometimes it's a lie just because they don't want you to go there. Uh, but, you know, like where to find a boat ramp or where to get bait or something like that. People are pretty forthcoming with that. But very specific things, that takes time. Um, I also wanted to give you guys kind of briefly some of my go-to rods and reels uh, that I've kind of settled on over the years. I'm not really going to talk about the, the telescopic rods that I keep in my travel kits and behind the truck kit, uh, seat truck kits. Um, but I've done reviews on those and, and, and this is to take nothing away from them. But I've, I've kind of settled on, unless I'm like fishing for really big fish. And it's, some of it's just upscaled versions of the things I'm going to talk about. Like four rods and, and three different, actually five different reels. That make up the majority of what I do. First of all, I'm a spin fisherman. So I fish, fish with an open face spinning reel primarily. I do have some bait casting equipment that I use uh, for things like slabbing and trolling and stuff like that. But in general, 90% of what I do is spin fishing. Um, and again, open face spin fishing, not spin casting, which are like your closed face zapcos and stuff like that. Uh, so these are all spinning rods. But the two rods that I have kind of settled on and two different sizes in them are the Ugly Stick Elite in a 5-foot, 6-inch light action and a 6-foot medium action. These are both two-piece rods. And the Ugly Stick GX2 in 6-foot medium and 6-foot heavy. The chief difference between these rods, because the, the, the Elite and the GX2 are very similar in price if you're about the same kind of action, size, etc., is the handle. The handle on the GX2 is a bit thicker. Generally speaking, even the same action, the shaft is a little bit thicker, so it has a little more backbone to it, even at a similar action. And action is just how much flex there is in the rod. It's the easiest way, without getting technical, to think about it. And uh, I like the GX2 for things like slabbing, where your slab is a, a lure that weighs, you know, could weigh a half ounce, could weigh an ounce and a half. I usually use about one ounce slabs, and they look like a like a dying shad basically. And generally, we jig them. 
So we're dropping them in a vertical presentation. You know, you're 22 feet deep, you know, with a boat over a spot. And you're, you're kind of just moving them vertically up and down. And I have a video on how to do this that I'll put in today's show notes. And you might imagine with that kind of a heavy lure there and that long distance between you and it and moving it, having a little bit of backbone in there. And I kind of like the GX2s for that. In general, I like the elites and the light to medium actions for sensitivity and strength. Like if you break an ugly stick, you did something wrong. I've seen one ugly stick broken by a fish in my life. And it was a guy fishing for sharks on Sanibel Island, and I don't know what he hooked, but I would estimate it was either a big lemon or a, a medium-sized bull shark. And he had it into his stomach, and he was holding for everything he could to tighten up in his drag, and eventually it broke in three pieces. Uh, so it, it snapped, and like a, a, about a foot-long piece came out of the center and hit him right in the forehead. And uh, I just don't think he was going to land that fish anyway. I was actually surprised the line held up enough to break the rod. So that, that's a pretty extreme example of something that would break those rods. So I like ugly sticks in general. They're tough. But the Elite have that real sensitivity. The other big difference, again, is the handle. The GX2 series of the ugly sticks have a foam handle, and the Elites have a cork handle. And personally, I prefer a cork handle. If everything's equal, the thing is they're not completely equal. Um, the reason I like a cork handle is when you're handling fish and things like that and you get some fish slime on you and you get it on the cork, it cleans up a little bit less. It doesn't really sink in and end up with like this lingering fish stink on the rod, on the rod. Where some of your foam handles over time start to kind of build up a little bit of, you know, fish scent to them. Uh, that's one thing. And I just feel like the cork handles last a little bit longer. And I, I personally feel they fit better in the hand. Most of the foam handles are actually a little bit, have a little more girth to them, so some people like that. Some people find them a little bit more cushioning on larger fish, but it's up to you. But my go-to four rods, and I own all four of these, and actually I own multiples of all of them, is the Elite and 5'6 light action and 6'0 medium action, and the GX2 and 6'0 medium and 6'0 heavy. And again, I use those mostly, the medium to heavies, for things like jigging, for surf fishing, for larger surf fish and things like that. But I've caught lots of fish on light action rods. I've caught big fish. On light action rods, run a like 10 pound test in the surf. One of the things that's advantageous about the surf, this is one of the places I think people don't realize, if you want to catch fish that is bigger than your gear, the surf is one of the best places to do it, assuming it's sandy bottom, it's not rocky. Because there's not much for the line to bump on, there's not a lot of cover for a fish to go in. So, like when we fish for snook in Florida, which is like this big, think of it like a giant saltwater striped. One striped bass, right? It looks like a large mouth with a weird shape and one big long stripe going down its, its side. And they are brutal fish. They're like a, a bass on crack and meth at the same time when you hook one. And we fish for them in the backwaters and they're up in the mangroves. Well, we fish with like a really heavy braided line, fluorocarbon leader, and a really quick action, kind of medium quick action rod with a pretty good gear ratio. So you got some mechanical advantage because Either catch and release only, you fish with what's called a circle hook. So when that fish takes the bait, you just start reeling. And that hook sets itself in the corner of the mouth. So it's easy for catch and release. But as soon as you get hooked up, you gotta, you gotta get them out of there. Or they'll go up into those mangroves and they'll wrap around that and you're not getting them out. They'll eventually get to a point where they can break the leader and they get free. When you're fishing in a, in, a, in a, the surf, they don't have anything like that. You know, unless you're by a pier or something, it's just sand. 
Then the other thing was, now we get the fish away from the mangroves, and we're fishing in the backwaters, and then we got to get it to the boat. Well, now we got a couple feet down to the boat. we got to get a net, what have you. You're fishing in the surf. You get that fish that's really overpowering for the gear. You tire it out. You reel it in till it's in really skinny water. You wait for a wave to come in, and when the wave comes in, what do you do? You just bring the fish with the wave, and when the wave goes back out, the fish is beached. So I've beached like 12, 14, 16-pound snook on you know medium light-action rods running 10-pound line, just 10-pound plain old strand mono. And that would be really difficult to do in other situations. So what rod you use, what line you use, it's all situational. But those four... I've used a bunch. For reels on them, and I have some larger reels I use for bigger fish again, right? But for reels on those rods, I, I've come to really like the Akuma ABF in the, either the 20 or 30 size, uh, which is a, a bait feeder reel. And what that reel allows you to do is if you have a rod, and you have it sitting in like a rod holder, and you're fishing with live bait, when you cast it out, you tighten your lineup, you flip a little lever, and a fish takes it, It's, it just lets the fish take the drag. It's really, really light. And as soon as you turn the handle one time, it locks in so you can set the hook. I like those reels for that, but I like those reels. They are, I, I discovered them a couple years ago when I got a couple of the larger, the ABF 65s on our barter blanket here from a guy named Jeff. When I discovered that reel, I went, this is one of the best values on the market for the quality, how smooth it is how well it kicks over when you want it to kick over, just great reels. And the 20 size and 30 size are about perfect for these kind of light to medium action six-foot rods. They balance beautifully. My old favorite is a reel called the Mitchell 300. I'm such a fan of the Mitchell 300. I have the old-school black steel-bodied ones that were made in France in the 1960s. I have a box of them I haven't gotten to re refurbishing yet. And I like the brand-new ones that are being made today. And I like everything in between. Uh, Mitchell 300, one of the best values out there. And then a reel I discovered recently when I was setting up a couple GX2s for slab and for, for sand bass when I got the boat, uh, is the Garcia Black, Abu Garcia Black Max in either a 20 or 30 size. And I'm running a 30 size on a, uh, ugly stick GX2, uh, six foot medium. And that's giving me, one of the things with jigging, a lot of the people that jig for, um, sand bass and stripers that, uh, use the heavy slabs tend to go with a bait casting reel because it's got more stiffness to it, so it's got more control. And again, if you watch my video, it makes sense why. The uh, the GX2 six-foot medium has plenty of backbone for stuff like that, and I don't have to give up fishing with a spinning reel because, frankly, I'm just not that good with a bait caster. Your bait casting reels are the ones you fish. The reels, when you're holding the rod, the reel is up. So when you look down, the reel's looking at your face. And you, if you're right-handed, you reel with your right hand. And when you go to cast, there's a button or a lever that you push, and your thumb has to go on the spool. If you don't do that, the line starts running out, and it'll backlash. And as you cast, you kind of ride that line, like, like think of it like a clutch for a car with your thumb. And if you don't do it just right, it overspools, and it makes a big bird's nest. And you got to pull it out, and it's a pain in the ass. There's a lot of advantages to them as well, but... I personally like spin cast better. When I say open face spin cast, if you're right-handed, you're reeling with your left hand, holding the rod with your right. That's one of the main things. I like to fight a fish with my dominant hand. And I like the balance of the reel on the underside of the rod. But when you go to cast, you pull the line back with your finger and you open a bale. It's a little, little lever that comes across, boom, and you cast. And it just runs out, and when it gets to where it's going, it hits the water. And it stops. It doesn't just keep rolling out and screwing up.
unless you've done something wrong, okay? And then you clip that bail over and you can reel back in. So I like to use spin cast rods, and I found the six foot medium and six foot heavy uh, GX2 ugly sticks to have the same kind of backbone that you get with a good bass casting rod. So that's why I like those. Um, and again, the Garcia, Abu Garcia Black Max 20 or 30, those are great reels, and they, they have a red aluminum spool, and they just look badass on the GX2 rod. If looks matter, and I know they really don't, but they kind of do with guys all the time with equipment, right? They, they look cool. So let's talk about some fishing stories and some techniques from 35 years of fishing. I'm going to talk about from being a little kid to, to, to more recent times, and just some fun stories that I wanted to tell you about today. And kind of the, the concept of, like, one of the things I like about fishing is I like problem solving. I like getting into a situation and saying, okay, this isn't working. What can I do differently? Oh, I need this, but I don't have this. How can I get this or get something that will do the same thing? So one example of this is, and I did this many times in Florida, uh, but I, like, I remember the first day I ever did this. I was out fishing for bass, just largemouth bass, and I had worms for bait. And that's, that's a lot. And I had bread. And I always took bread fishing with me in Florida because if you, if, you, if you had bread, you could catch bluegills. And if you could catch bluegills, you could catch anything. And frankly, I like to eat fish. And a lot of the ponds and little ponds and stuff down in, in Jacksonville, Florida, man, you can catch big bluegills. I'm talking like 8 inches, 9 inch bluegills, which is a hell of a bluegill. So I always had some bread with me. You know, if nothing else, you could feed the ducks if you were bored. And uh, I noticed that the bass are chasing minnows. And while I can catch bluegills, I'm not able to catch any little ones. I'm catching all these nice kind of hand-sized ones, and I want to catch the bass. And the bass are just not hitting the worms that day. Just one reason or another, just wasn't doing it for them. Maybe I'd caught them and let them go too many times, and they were sick of being caught. And they were like, that's a worm. That's what's going to happen to me. I don't want that. But I noticed they're chasing minnows. And there's minnows all in the lake. But you don't just go grab a minnow with your hand. I'm not that fast anyway. I don't have a net. But I know minnows like bread. So what I ended up doing was I took that, the, the, I had like the whole, like the bag the bread comes in from the store. There was like, you know, three or four slices left, so I just took the whole thing with me. So I take the extra bread out and I put it in my fishing kit so it doesn't get stale. And I take a little couple little pieces of bread, I put it back in the bottom of the bag. And I got one of my rods, and I put a hook through the top of the bag, and I set the bag in the water. And then I took a stick and propped the end of the bag open, and I left the rod attached to it and spooled some line out. And I threw a little bit of bread right around the entrance of the bag. Well, of course, all of a sudden, little minnows are pecking at the bread, pecking at the bread, pecking at the bread. Well, when they ate all of that bread, what are they going to do? They go in the bag. It's clear. They think they can get through it. So after about five minutes, I pull the, the rod up and pull the bag in, and now the bag's got ten minnows in it. Throw them in a bucket, start fishing with them for bass. So, I, and I, see, this is why I think this is a good thing for kids to do. And if you can find a way for kids to do it on their own, even when they're quite young, to let them do it. I, I think I was about nine years old, ten years old, the first time I ever did that. And I was at an apartment complex. They call it something else now, but back in the day it was called Woodmere. And had this really long, thin, they called it canal, but it didn't go from one place to another. It ended on both ends. It was like a long canal with a big round lake on one end, and it went all the way to a point where it broke out into two narrow things, and it went around and make another big lake. And it was probably a quarter mile long like that. And I remember doing that. And I remember catching a bunch of bass that day. 
And contrast that to how a kid 9, 10, 11 years old thinks today when they don't have what they need. Mom, can I get it? Mom, can I have it? And I'm telling you, like, I'm not unique from that generation that thought that way. My friends and I did shit like this all the time. Some of them were into fishing, some weren't. But in everything we did, it was always, how can we get around this? How can we do this? Uh, another example of that is fishing with flowers. Now, I have a video series, like four-part video series, where I do fishing with flowers. And I think the, one of them's got like 40,000 views or something like that. And it's just a little creek uh, by where I used to live in Arlington. And I did that video not because I wanted to go fish with flowers, because I wanted to show that it could be done. But this was something that came from my childhood. In that video, I start out with a flower, and I catch some perch, and then I catch a catfish, and I catch a great big snapping turtle, showing that that's a, that's a survival skill. Like If you understand that something like a flower blossom can be used to catch a fish, then no matter where you go, if you can catch a little fish, you can use a little fish to catch a big fish, you can feed yourself. But that's not how it started. When I was like 10, 11 years old when we did this the first time, it wasn't because I wanted to survive. It's because, you know, as a kid, you could only get so much bread and bait and stuff from parents, digging up worms and stuff like that. And one day we were fishing this creek. And it was a creek that ran through a neighborhood uh, that was near, like kind of between where I lived and where I went to school. And I guess I would have been 11 or 12 years old, somewhere in that range, because we were still living in Florida. And this creek was pretty cool. It was like this long creek. It had some concrete weirs in it. And where the weirs dropped down, there was like some concrete ledges. And then up under those ledges, we used to catch really big bullhead catfish. I'm talking 14, 15 inch all the time in this little bitty creek. And it's an example of like talk to people, including kids, because I guarantee you no adults knew the fish that were in that creek. They just would have looked at it and went, no, come on, it can't be anything in there. And they probably all thought it was like a dirty, nasty creek. It was like crystal clear water. You could see the bottom, and it was in these little recesses that these bullheads had because they didn't want to be seen. They, don't, they like to be concealed. So we used to catch them on cut bait, like you know your bluegills and stuff like that. So one day we're out of bait, and we're sitting there deciding, like, do we go home? Do we go play in the woods? Do we go work on our fort? Or how can we keep fishing? And me and this friend of mine are sitting there, and we see like the, the, the wind blows, and this flower falls off the stem and falls on the weir, and it goes over the weir, and it goes floating down, and we see bloop, and a, a, a bluegill came up and ate it. And we just both looked at each other and be like, aha. So we start picking flowers, little number 10 hooking them, boom, we start catching the bluegills. Once we start catching the bluegills, we can cut bait, now we start catching the catfish again. And, and, and see, again, this is what I'm saying, like, I think that's valuable for kids, but I think it's valuable for adults to be in these different situations as well. Here's one that wasn't really, that eh, was kind of like innovative for a kid, but it was more just like fun. I, I used to go to Jacksonville Beach all the time when I was a kid. My, my dad, my mom, my grandparents would take us to the beach. And, uh, you know, by the time I got to nine, ten years old and I was fishing all the time, I really snapped to it. Hey, while we're at the beach, I could bring my rod and some frozen shrimp and I could be fishing while they're all doing whatever the hell they're doing in the sand. So I started bringing my rod to the beach. So one day I'm out at the beach and I start talking to this guy and he's telling me there's sharks out there. You know, and I'm a little kid. This is like this, this you know, he was probably his 20s or something like that. I, I couldn't, if I could draw, I still couldn't draw a picture of what I'm looking at. But I just remember the conversation talking to him. Yeah, there's sharks out there. And he, he was a surfer. He's like, we see them all the time because when we're up on the boards... 
if the water clears up a bit, you can see around you. And I haven't seen a lot of really big sharks, but there's sharks out there. Well, I'm going to catch shark, right? So the first thing I do is catch some whiting. So I start catching some whiting, and I put them in the cooler. So then I put a big hook on a big weight on, and I, I throw this out there. And, uh, you know, it takes a while, but I get a bite. The line starts running. As soon as I hit it, it's just like there's nothing there. And I reel it in, and there's there's just no hook. It's just gone. It looks like somebody cut it with a pair of wire cutters, which is kind of what happened. So I go to my dad and tell him, I'm trying to catch a shark, and this happened. He goes, oh, he cut the line with his teeth. You need a steel leader. Steel leader. So I'm in the toolbox, or the tackle box. There's no steel leaders. Well, about a half mile down the beach, there's like a little tackle shop. So I go humping my little ass down there, bought a couple steel leaders, and I come back, and I get that all, all tied up, and I'm out there, and I'm fishing with, you know, kind of the gear like I fish with now, like, you know, medium heavy action rod. Probably back then I was bigger on heavy, heavy lines, probably running like 14, 16-pound lines, something like that. And a steel leader and a, and a cut piece of uh, whiting on like a, a six-odd hook or something like that. Well, next thing I know, the line starts peeling out again. And uh, this time when I hit, the, you get that, that amazing thing. That you know? And I, I start fighting this fish. And it, it's about 20 minutes before I think, you know, I really start to gain on this fish and start to get it to come in. And now I start doing kind of the backing up. Right, So when you're surf fishing, you know, you're out to your waist or whatever, as you start getting the fish closer, you start taking a couple steps backward at a time, and you're working that fish in so you can beach the fish. And, of course, there's people swimming and stuff, and there's people keep coming right around where I've got this fish I'm fighting, and I'm telling I'm a little kid, I'm going, it's, there's a shark on there, you don't want to move. And they're like, screw you or whatever. So I, I, I'm going to catch my fish, right? So finally I get this thing, you know, probably 15, 20 feet away from me, and you see the fin. And it was about a three-and-a-half-foot sandbar shark, And I finally get this thing in the shore. I'm, I'm yelling for my old man. He doesn't believe that I have a shark, right? I'm like, well, what do you think I'm doing out here with this rod bent over? But nobody believes a kid like this. So finally, he sees this thing. He comes running down. We get this thing up on shore. And he ends up you know, getting, I don't know, he got something, like a stick or something, so we could get the hook out. We didn't have, like, a long handle pair of pliers, and you don't want to get bit. So we get the hook out of this thing, and I go, and I go drag it back by the tail, into the surf and push it out, and it's kind of tired, so it like swims around in the shallows for like five minutes. And again, this is like a three and a half foot shark. It's for me, it was you know when I told the story at school, it was like eight feet long, right? But like it was a three and a half foot sandbar shark, and it's not really dangerous to people or whatever. We cleared the beach out for 150 yards in both directions. What nobody would go, even when the shark left, nobody would go in the water. I'm back out there up to my waist fishing again. People just start coming back into the water. There's another one. I caught two of them that day, and I don't think anybody that was there when they were caught went back in the water for these two little sharks. But that was a hell of a lot of fun. And it's like, again, so like, that's one of those things you just don't know what's going to happen, but I was willing to give it a shot even as a kid, and it worked out. By the way, we've caught plenty of sharks, little ones, medium sized ones on like Sanibel Island. I've caught them on the coast of Texas. They're a lot of fun. There's a picture of me today. The last time I was out at Sanibel, we didn't get anything like these three-footers, but I got into like a school of black-tip pups. Uh, these guys were like about two foot long, and I uh, caught tons of them while I was out there. It was a hell of a lot of fun. And again, light-action, medium-light-action rods were good. Um, another kid's story. I call this one Mudfish and Golden Shiners. So my grandparents 
not not too long before we moved back to Pennsylvania. So this would have been, you know, I'm probably 12 at this point. You're getting to that point as a kid where you're a bit more self-sufficient. You really can do things on your own. They moved to this new housing development, and they put a lake in. It was about a four-acre lake. I was in heaven. And for the first year, they, and as soon as they put it in, they stocked it. And they stocked it with some decent fish, and it, it, it took off pretty quick. And they were slowly building houses around the lake. So for the first year, I could fish like anywhere I want. And by the time you know, it was close to where we were getting ready to move, I had this one little park they put in down there for public access, and you could walk way around the back in the woods and get to it. And the rest of it was all you know, people had taken it up. But somewhere along the way, either with you know some creeks that flew into it or somebody thinking it was funny, somebody stocked it with something you call mudfish or bowfin. And I'd heard about these fish, but I'd never actually seen one before. And I'm down there fishing one day at this little park, and something's like rolling, like like the way kind of like the way carp roll, like like that, you know. And these are big fish, and you know I go home that day and tell my grandfather's. Big fish, you know, and I'm like 25, 30 inches. There. I can tell they're out way out there, and you know, no idea what they were really, but I knew that no one, again, no one believes you. So <laughs> I, I go back down there uh, the next day because I used to spend a night at their place all the time, and I bring some bread and, and hooks, little bitty hooks, and I catch a thing called a golden shiner. Now, these things get big, they get you know, 12, 13 inches. And they're a big minnow. And they stock them in a lot of lakes in Florida because largemouth bass love them. And with the size they get, they help the largemouths put a lot of weight on. So I start fishing with these things, and I'm not catching anything. So finally, I'm like, okay, when something doesn't work, do something else. So I fillet one and cut a big strip, about a four-inch by two-inch strip, and put like a big like four-aught hook into it. No weight, and I just whip it out as far as I can out to where I had seen these fish rolling here and there. Let it sink to the bottom, line takes off, bam, and you know, I catch like a 20-inch bowfin. And I caught four or five, and like the biggest one was probably 28 inches long, you know, and I go home, I caught all these big fish, where are they? Let them go, they're not good to eat, you know. No one believes you. So I, I start catching these things left and right, and finally one day I put one in a bucket, and I bring it up to show the old man, so believe me, and then I run back down on my bike and let it go. And again, like, see, that was an example of making something work. And, and it, all of these things are examples of that. Another example, this isn't even really fishing, but it was a fishing technique. Um, this is, again, you're talking a 10-, 12-year-old uh, range. My buddy, uh, a guy named David from Florida, different David than the one you hear me mention on the, phone, uh, the show all the time, um, had a, a, bro a little brother named Danny, and Danny's going to go play baseball. And he's like, do you want to go to my brother's baseball game? I'm like, I don't want to go to your brother's baseball game. What does a 12-year-old want to go to a 10-year-old's baseball game for? You? No, no, it'll be cool. We don't, we, we, you know, we'll go to the concession stand. We'll get like a snow cone and shit, and we'll we'll go down in these ditches and catch these ditch eels. Ditch eels, okay, right? Okay, now I'm into this. But what the hell's a ditch eel? He says, I don't know. There are these eels and they're in the ditches, and we we try to catch them by hand and whatever. So I like I bring some hand lines, and we end up going down there with some hand lines and some shrimp, and we set some hand lines like basically like limb lines, but there's no limbs. You like tie it to a rock. And throw it in because you, you sure enough you walk through it and you see these like these black backs sticking out and when you get close they go under the water and as later it gets the more of them are there so we finally catch a couple of these things we pull them out by the way they bite like a bitch don't ask me ask David David's the first guy that got bit so they have these really sharp teeth and they're actually a salamander called an amphrima 
And um, they get, you know, they can be two feet long. They can be four feet long. So we start catching these things and, and trying to get the hooks out without getting bit. So then the game became, the next time we're going to go, who can we get to go with us to trick into grabbing one so they get bit? And that was just, that's, there's no real lesson there other than you got to be careful how you pick your friends. <laughs> Because they might be people that, that take pleasure at your your, your pain, um, though it wasn't a serious thing, but it did hurt. Um, and you know, just just fun. Here's some stuff that's more moving into my like my teens, um, and actually kind of like you might need this someday. Well, so this is what I'll call sticks and trout. So I'm out fishing one day for brook trout, and this stream that I knew about from talking to people, even as a kid. Um, in, in the mountains in Pennsylvania. And this was a like, place where very few people fished because they didn't stock it. These were native trout. And people, again, because there was mines in the area, because this creek ran into a nasty creek, but the nasty creek didn't run into it, right, the other way around. Just nobody figured there was anything in there worth fishing for. And there were a lot of really nice brook trout in this, this stream. And I'm watching, and these fish are hitting grasshoppers. That just happened to be what was you know out. And any time a grasshopper hits the, the water, they're hitting it. But they're in these pockets that I really can't cast to. And you really can't cast a grasshopper really well either, right? Because he's so light. And if you put a weight on him, then he's not floating anymore. So I'm trying to work out everything to do here. And I'm like, well, if I had a bobber, you know, a float, I could put the float on above the grasshopper, get upstream and, and drift him down to where these fish are. But I don't have a bobber. So I just get a piece of like dead, you know, scrap wood, like something you'd use for kindling, and I take my knife and I cut a groove into both sides of it. I don't want to tie it. You put a knot in something like that, you make the line weak, it's going to fail. So I just kind of put the line into these two things, so it's like a, a slip bobber. And then I start using this this piece of wood, and I catch grasshoppers and put them on the hook, and I drift it down into these holes that these fish are sitting in. And the, the wood takes the grasshopper with it and keeps it from getting caught on the bottom or caught on the overhangs, and I catch a whole bunch of trout that day. In fact, I brought a nice stringer of fish home that day. They're good-eating fish. And there was really no other way to get that done in that situation with the things that I had. And, and, and that was an example of looking at the situation, assessing the situation, and figuring out... Another example, this would be kind of late teens, right before I left for the Army, I had this uh, this girlfriend, and I think I hung out with her dad more than I hung out with her. And, and one night he's like, hey, you want to go fishing? I'm like, yeah, so we go fishing for the night. And he had a boat, and we're out on, on this, this lake called Tuscarora in, uh, in Pennsylvania. And we're, we're kind of motoring around, we're not really catching anything, and we come back into this one little cove, and we start hearing slap, slap. Slap. Something is eating off the surface. We don't know what. And we start casting back, and we start throwing some like uh, jitterbugs, which is a lure, like a topwater lure, and some other topwaters. We throw worms back there. We throw minnows back in there. You know, we're not wanting to get in too close and scare whatever it is. And we're going, 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 and we, we, we can't get anything to bite. So finally, I just take a nightcrawler, take the weight off the line, hook the nightcrawler through the, the collar. So if you think of a nightcrawler worm, you got that big collar. So I just loop one hook through the collar, and I take a hypodermic needle. And this was an old trout fisherman thing. You, you pump some air into the worm, he'll float. Now, usually what you do is you put a weight and, like, say, float them a foot or two foot off the bottom. 
Well, in this case, no weight. He's going to float on the surface. So I got my light action rod, and I just kind of lob him back into where we're hearing all this stuff going on and sitting there on the surface. About a minute goes by. Boom, there goes the line. Boom. Biggest to this day, that first one, biggest black crappie I've ever caught in my life. In fact, I've never caught a lot of crappie. I'm not a big-time crappie fisherman. We slaughtered them that night with that. And, and worms are generally not a good crappie bait. But it was a situation. It was the situation. And, uh, yeah, that first one was just massive. For, I don't remember how big it was, but I, I know I haven't caught. I've seen plenty of people catch bigger ones. I have not caught one bigger than that. A um, little bit about the, the, uh, the river we used to fish. So there's this part of the Little Schuylkill River in Pennsylvania. And if you know the area well, you might even sort of be able to figure out where it is by what I'm about to say, but I'm not going to give it away 100%. There's a state game lands which is obviously open for public hunting, fishing, etc., along Highway 61. And that state game lands actually comes across Highway 61 and for a part of that river on the other side of the highway and a little sliver along the river and then back over across the highway again. And this is a spot that I've fished since... I, I was fishing it when I would go to Pennsylvania um, for summer vacation from Florida. And I grew up as a teenager fishing it all the time. Once I had a car, we were down there all summer long fishing this place. And the river's beautiful there. It's crystal clear, big boulders, and it's really shallow. And there's several really big holes along it. And it is full of smallmouth bass. There's some brown trout in it too, but smallmouth bass is what it's really good for. Well, there's a railroad track that runs through there. And the railroad company posts it with a sign that says, no trespassing, keep out, whatever. And the railroad company can basically tell you you can't walk down the tracks. But they can't block you from getting to the state game lands. You walk across the railroad. So anybody that goes back there finds this gate and this no trespassing private property shit, but it's all from the railroad company. It's not valid. Unless, again, you're walking up and down the tracks or something like that. So we'd park our car, never heard a word boo from anybody. And we'd walk right across the tracks, go down to the, the river, and work up and down and find the spots that were the good spots to fish. This is the place that my wife realized she loved fishing. And this place was amazing. And, and one of the main techniques we would use there, we'd use night crawlers, just big worms. And, you know, the river would had, had its flow going, let's say, left to right across your face. And you get in these big holes kind of to the center. You cast upstream right to this far cutout bank, and you just kind of drifted in a big arc down through there. And we'd catch a piece, a hundred-plus smallmouth bass in a day out there. And I'm saying three, four hours. And we caught everything from fish that were six, seven inches long to fish that were 16, 18 inches long. And when you catch a smallmouth in moving water, I'm going to tell you what it does. As soon as you hook it, it goes straight downstream. It turns sideways, and it uses the current to fight. And you catch you know, a little eight-inch uh, smallmouth, and that thing would fight like it was a 16-inch fish. And when you caught a 16-inch fish, you really had something going on. And and that place is a special place to me. And I've actually, this is like my case for making and developing relationships as a fisherman. There's a couple people in this audience that have fished that place in the last couple of years and have told me it's just like it was when I was a kid because I've reached out to them and said, hey, I know where you are. I know you're trustworthy. Let me tell you about this this secret spot my family had was because I know nobody in my family's fishing it anymore. And 
it, it gives me a lot of pleasure to know of all the things that I know of where I grew up that aren't there anymore, that have been ripped out, torn down, constructed around, destroyed, that that place is still there. And that's, that's another thing for fishing. Like, see, I think if more of us did this, we would preserve more of these places. Because it, it becomes important to you, becomes special to you, these, these little creeks, these little holes, these little spots that nobody really thinks about. If, if somebody actually cares about them, we'll actually try to preserve them. The last one I wanted to talk about today is a technical technique. It's called Helpet. And uh, it's something you could probably adapt to other, other species of fish. We use it here in Texas primarily for sand bass and hybrids. And it, it's called Helpet because it uses a, a product called a Hellbender and a Pet Spoon. And a Hellbender is a deep diving crankbait. They're about two to three inches long. And they have two treble hooks on them and a, a really big bill. And when you retrieve them, they wobble. And generally speaking, if people are using them on a cast and retrieve instead of for trolling, you never really get to the full potential of the dive. You reel it for a while, it dives down, and you let it come up. And you reel it, and it kind of runs in this kind of up and down pattern. Great old lure, not used as much as it used to be as a straight lure anymore. But it is fantastic as basically like a poor man's downrigger. In lakes that support large amounts of hybrid bass and sand bass, you inevitably end up with something called a thermocline in the summer. And what that is, is there'll be a point where below that, the water goes very stagnant. Stagnant is maybe not the right, it goes very still. And the water changes temperature as it drops. And you'll get to a point where this thermocline forms, and there's all fish suspended right at it and just above it and they'll even go down below it briefly to feed on prey that goes down below it briefly to, 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 to escape but they won't stay down there because the oxygen levels are low below the thermocline and you get to certain patterns where these fish just hang out around certain structures and all just above that thermocline inevitably here it generally forms about 20 to 22 feet and these things will run at about 18 to 22 feet And the way that you build the Hellpet, and you can just put in Hell, H-E-L-L, space P-E-T, trolling in Google, and you'll find plenty of articles on this where people have given this away, but you remove your treble hooks from your Hellbender lure. And there's an eye hook that holds the hook on the tail, the back end of it. You remove the hook from that with a split ring, and you attach a leader to it, about two, three feet long. And at the end of that leader, you put the pet spoon. The pet spoon is a little wobbly silver or gold spoon that kind of wobbles like a little fish as it goes through the water. And then you let out line, generally a, use a bait casting reel for this. This is the ones I talk about, use your thumb on. You let that out for about a 20 to 25 count, depending on your line, the rod, the speed of the boat, whatever. You want to move the boat at about two miles an hour, two to two and a half miles an hour. And once you're out for a 20 count, you lock the reel and you hold on. And what's going to happen is that lure starts running and it dives down. And sometimes if you're not getting deep enough, you hang a little uh, casting weight on the bill of that, that lure. If you get it down all the way to that 22 feet, and you run about two, two and a half miles an hour, and you, you, have to, you don't just do this anywhere. You have to know structure where the fish are. But when those fish are there, but they won't hit a spoon, they won't hit that slab that you're jigging. They just don't want it. They're just sitting there suspended. There's something about it when that bait comes perfectly lateral, horizontally across them they just hit it and they hit it like it's like magic 
Once you locate a spot where this technique works, and it only works certain months out of the year when that thermocline's in place and those fish are suspended, but once you dial it in, it's literally a fish every every pass. We we had it where we put out two marker buoys, and like I would drive, and my son and a friend would be in the boat, and we would turn around, and they'd let the lines out, and I'd start heading for the other buoy, and by the time they got to the other buoy, they both had a fish. And I'd wear a baseball glove, like a baseball batting glove on my left hand so you don't get finned. And I had a pair of pliers, and I'd, they, they'd kind of throw me the fish, and I'd unhook them and throw them in the box. And while I was doing that, my son would take over driving the boat and kind of turn it around. And by the time he got it turned around, I had both fish in the box. Rod's back in, make another pass, two more fish. Make another pass, two more fish. Make another pass, two more fish. And, I mean, you're talking about, about one minute a pass. And it is deadly effective. And it's one of those things that if you don't know it, you won't recognize it when you see it. Case in point, my new buddy David and I are out in my new boat a couple weeks ago before I turned it in to get the new electronics on it, but I'll tell you about it in a second. And we had found a spot that looked on the graph like a place to go for sand bass. And there's tons of boats out there, so we know we're in the right place. Everybody's kind of trolling around, real slow with their trolling motor, trim, you know, no, no gas motors running, nothing, bouncing. And one redneck in an aluminum John boat with his outboard running at low idle speed, moving about two and a half miles an hour, trolling right back and forth between everybody, and everybody looking at him like he's a dumbass, but he's pulling a fish out every single pass, and he was help heading. We had a product called a Jet Diver that I've used before that just wasn't getting it done that day, and then I had to find some hellbenders. Apparently, this technique's getting more well-known, and they're harder to find. But I'll put a link in the show notes to where you can, you can at least see what they are and, and order some if you live where this technique will work. I would not go doing this, you know, random everywhere. But I'll bet you that this technique, or using a jet diver of the appropriate size, because they make them like 10, 20, 30, and 40 feet, these little jet divers, I'll bet you there's fish that can be taken when no other method will work. It's just about you adapting the technique. So that's kind of a, a little cool, like, advanced technique. I thought I would throw into all these other, like, techniques I did when I was a kid and just stories. All right, so I want to talk a little bit about the new electronics because this stuff can get sophisticated. And recently I bought a boat, and it's a 17-foot center console QS boat. It's a 96. It's got a 110 Mercury on it. Uh, really great boat, really great condition, But it wasn't really expensive. Uh, I got it a good deal. I think I stole it, honestly, the price I got it for. And I looked a long time. I found a boat where you have one of those guys. He's got, like, every maintenance record ever. You know, he had all the vinyl redone on it for the seat covers, like, two years ago. He had some keel damage. He had that all done. Like, everything was just taken care of perfectly. Motor starts right up. You know, just a great boat. And I was looking at new boats, too. And I decided what I would do... And so I would, buy, find, I would wait till I found a screaming deal, which I did, and I would put the money into my electronics and my trolling motor. And here's what I've paired up my boat with. And some of you are going to go, that's some techno speak I don't understand. Don't worry, I'll tell you what's cool about it instead of what it all means. And some of you are going to go, oh, if you're, you know, like, especially like tournament bass fishermen and stuff. The, the fish finder and GPS that I put on it is a Hummingbird Helix 7 Chirp uh, with GPS 2N. And it's paired up with a Minn Kota Tarova 80-pound 24-volt uh, uh, trolling motor with US-2 and iPilot. And they, these two together have a, a, a technology called iPilot Link. And there's a link in the show notes today where you can see like all the cool things that iPilot Link 2 does. But let me kind of explain. Like This is automation. 
And this is automation that, like, if you were a fishing guide, this would take away the need for, like, a first mate. I mean, that's how cool this stuff is. So what this does is it allows you, like, a normal GPS, this, let's say, set waypoints and trails, right? So uh, I want to have, I want to mark a trail from this place to this place, and this is the path that I'm going to take there. And then it, there's a point right there. And if you have that stored in your GPS, the, the, the GPS in the fish finder unit, that's a screen, talks to the motor and tells the motor where to go. So it'll follow that trail. We always talking about white bass. So if you wanted to troll using your troller motor instead of your outboard and do helipad, you could mark your points and the boat will just go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth while you and your buddy or you by yourself are sitting there trolling. And the motor will run, and you can even program it to, like, when it gets to the end, to slow down and take its time making the big turn to come back around so you have time to reposition the rod or get the fish off the hook. You can control course and speed of all these things. It gets better. You should probably know, if you've listened to the show for any length of time, what a, what, a, what a contour line is, because you've either heard us talk about maps and navigation or permaculture and contour lines to put a swale on, on contour or whatever. But basically, a contour line is, if you're looking at a contour map, that line might be, that's 35 feet above sea level. And that line will follow the contour of the land and show you, like, here's the ridge line, et cetera, whatever. Well, it works in reverse, you know, just like a canyon. Basically, a lake is a canyon that's full of water. So you have a contour line in a lake that says this is a ledge where it's eight feet, and this is the and there's a map. You know, there's uh, software and maps that that tell you this stuff. All these these lakes have been mapped. That that here's where that contour line is, and there's a 12 foot, and there's a 10 foot, and you know whatever. There's a 40 foot contour line. This is a creek channel, whatever. The motor and the fish finder will work together, and you can say, follow this contour line. So if you want to stay in exactly 12 feet of water and move really, really slowly, that motor will move at the slowest speed possible and keep you right on that contour line and follow it all the way along the edge of the lake. So you can fish right on that contour line or just off it. What if you want to fish right on that 12 feet and you don't want to scare the fish with your boat? You want to fish right on the 8-foot contour and you don't want to scare the fish with your boat? Well, you can tell the motor and the, the GPS unit, I want to stay 20 feet to the west of that contour line. And it will stay, and it will follow the contour line, but 20 feet off of it so you can cast to it and keep fishing it as you go along that contour line. If you're out fishing on a hump where we do the slabbing, and you know you want to hold the boat in a position, there's basically a button that looks like an anchor. It's called spot hold. And once you have that place marked... You want to stay over it instead of throwing an anchor out and scaring the fish? You just say, first of all, once you have the mark stored in your unit, you use a function called go to. You tell the boat to go there. So when you get close, shut off your gas motor, drop your trolling motor in, turn it on, say go to this point, and the boat just drives to it. It gets there, it's like, I'm here. You say, now stay. And it will stay within a couple feet, and it'll just hold you there. So when you hook a fish, you're not drifting away from that spot. It'll hold you on that spot. Or you can say, I want to kind of circle this hump, so I'm, I'm fishing all of the edges of it. So you can set it on its slowest speed and save a circle or an oval or you know kind of a wonky thing, or maybe there's a contour line around it, so you follow that, and it will just slowly keep you around the edges of that hump. 
And it will do that for you as long as you have battery power. This is automation come to like the average fisherman's world. And it's really cool, but it is kind of high tech, isn't it? It sounds a lot different than fishing with flowers or catching minnows in a bread bag. But I wanted to finish up with why I love both the high and low tech forms of fishing. Because it's all about problem solving. And in the end, it does feed what we started out with, that primal urge, that primal drive to be responsible for collecting your own food, even if you choose not to use it as that. In your mind, in your heart, there's that hunter-gatherer heart that we all have. And you're able to go out and do that. And I think it's fine to use these really high-tech things as long as we haven't put aside the low-tech. I'm a 45-year-old man as of tomorrow. It will be my birthday. And I will still climb down a steep bank ditch through stickers and poison ivy to get to a small creek to catch bullhead catfish. You know, I'm not going to sit just with my electronics and, and, and be some snobby bass fisherman that thinks a bass is something special and it's nothing but a big sunfish, right? I've, I've traveled to the coast. I've fished for snook. I've fished for striped bass. I've fished for sarks. But I'll still go catch, you know, I'll go out with my buddy, drink a couple beers at the park and catch a whole bunch of little perch to throw into our aquaponics system. And I'm still happy as shit. Because it's about the activity itself. Some days we do really good, some days we don't do so good, but you really get to enjoy yourself because you got the primal drive, that mental reward factor, and you just don't know what's going to happen. And I encourage you to take your kids out and try this, and to do it in a way that the kids enjoy. When they get cold or bored or tired, do something else, go home, take a break, whatever, but I'm going to tell you, all it takes is having that one moment for them. That one moment where something happens they didn't expect it. That one moment where that drag on that reel screams. That one moment where a fish jumps and they can see the line from the end of their rod going all the way to that fish and that fish walking the water. It takes that one moment and they're hooked. Metaphorically and I think literally as well. And maybe they'll be out one day with a bread bag catching minnows. Or fishing with flowers. Or hand-lining ditch eels. Or using a stick to make an improvised bobber so they can catch a trout. And those life skills. See, that's what this really is. Fishing is a life skill. And all of the skills translate to getting shit done. Throughout my career in technology and marketing, there were so many times I got to a situation where there was like everybody's like, well, there's no way we can complete this. We have to go home for the day, whatever. And I'd say, well, hold on. Let's think about this. Let's get this done. And that's what makes you successful in life. Whether it's, you know, the reward of getting promoted or getting an opportunity or a better job, or whether it is the direct reward of entrepreneurship. This stuff's all connected. And I'll tell you this. You show me a man who's a true fisherman, and he's probably a guy I can get along with. I, and I don't think it's because people of a certain mentality like to fish. I think it's because as you learn to fish, it changes your mentality. Fishing is about being proactive and solving problems. It's also accepting the things that can't change. Well, the winds are 25 miles an hour today, so we're not going to be fishing. Well, the fish just aren't biting today. Well, it rained today when it wasn't supposed to. Well, a cold front blew in and turned the bite off. Is there anything we can adapt to it? We'll try, and we might, or we might not. But we're still going to enjoy ourselves. 
So give it a shot, guys. I hope you enjoyed today's show, and I hope it was a bit of a change-up from some of the topics that we've been covering lately. With that, if you like this show and the work that I do, you can help support the show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Remember, this now works for everybody in the United States, the United Kingdom, and Canada. All of you can help support the show by shopping at tspaz.com. If you go to tspaz.com, I also always have reviews that I've done there, and today's product is a new product, though I talked about it before in conjunction with other products. It's an herb. It's organic lemongrass by Star West Botanicals. Specifically, it's about a pound of it for about 15 bucks and some change. Um, the reason I'm blogging about this one today, I've realized like I need to like cover all of the herbs that I've talked about in different tea blends and stuff like that. So that was one reason. The other reason is because it's the dominant thing in my teacup today. I drink herbal tea every day. I think it's really helped me, number one, kick my coffee habit. I still love coffee, but I don't drink it every day. And I needed to quit. I needed to quit because I was drinking three to four pots. Yes, three to four pots of coffee a day. Remember I had a lot more Stephen Harris episodes of my own a few years ago? That was probably part of why. I was so jacked up by caffeine by the time I hit record. I was like, Cornholio, I am Cornholio. Yeah, yeah, so I backed off. Some of you know that. Some of you are like, the hell, who the hell is Cornholio? It's a Beavis and Butthead thing for the 90s, guys. Anyway, so um, so I, I gave up the coffee every day thing, and I went to these herbal teas, and I came up with a tea that I've talked about a lot on the air. It's called Jack's Morning Blend. At least that's what I call it. It's two parts peppermint, two parts chamomile, one part lemongrass, one part lemon balm, and one part green tea. And that's become like my go-to. I drink that all the time. So this morning I wake up and I looked at my last jar of tea that I had mixed. I looked the same as it did the day before. It had a little bit of dust in the bottom of it and there wasn't nothing there. But yesterday I didn't feel like making another batch up, mixing and blending a batch. So I just went outside and grabbed a big handful of mint out of one of the aquaponics bed and I just drank straight mint tea. But today I'm like, yeah, I need to go upstairs and get the dry herbs and, and mix up another batch. So I go up there and I have like no peppermint at all, a little bit of lemon balm, and uh, not really very much chamomile, but I've got some of it, and I got a reasonable amount of the, the gunpowder green tea that I recommend, but I got a bunch of lemongrass still. They just run out of different frequencies, and I'm like, oh yeah, I was supposed to, to, to order more, but I piked and I didn't, so I'm like, let's do something with lemongrass as like the dominant player. So this, this blend I've called up, what I call it Jack's Lemongrass 321 Tea. Right, three, two, one. Not hard to figure out. Three parts lemongrass, two parts green tea, one part chamomile. Oh man, you might think that it would be very similar to the other one. It's not even close. It's totally different. Again, the lemongrass is like moved up to like first chair violin in the symphony here. It, it's playing the main theme, and it's got this incredible lemony flavor, and like a and it's grass, right? So it's got a grassy lemony thing that's really, really herbal and deep. And then the green tea, you know, green tea has kind of that, it's much softer tannin, but it's got that, like, I don't know, it's got that tea, true tea flavor. Well, that two parts green tea, there's enough of it there to really kind of come to the forefront. And then one part chamomile, it's in the background with that kind of buttery thing that chamomile does. And it's just fantastic. I only like my fifth cup of it today. And uh, really, really great. Now... I have the, 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 the recipe for the morning blend and the 321 in this review. The lemongrass makes a good ingredient in many teas, and it's pretty good tea all by itself. And I think a one-to-one -one mix with the green tea would be pretty damn... I'm going to try that, by the way. I'm going to do, like, you know... And, and when you want to try a tea for the first time, just do it measured out with tablespoons. And I always do my tea parts by volume 
And if it's, you know, that way it's really easy to adjust, right? So I think it would be good there. But why, of all the lemongrass out there, do I choose Star West Botanicals? First of all, I love Star West Botanicals for a lot of different herbs. Um, they really have a great quality. And I find Star West Botanicals organic often is about the same price as a conventional brand's conventional without it being organic, which has pesticides and crap in it like that. So I think you get about the same price for much better quality because while organic is not you know full-on Nirvana permaculture, it's better. But the next thing is the quality of the product itself. I can't tell you how many times I've ordered lemongrass from a company and went, this isn't lemongrass, this is lemongrass dust. It'll say cut and sifted. I think yeah, you cut it, you sifted it, and you sent me the siftings. This is pieces of chopped lemongrass about one quarter of a half inch long. It stays together nice. It's got enough surface area to give good flavor, but you don't end up with it like clogging your French press, not straining well out of a tea infuser, what have you. You don't end up with all a bunch of like dust particles in your tea. I mean, I've seen lemongrass tea that is literally like lemongrass powder. Not this stuff. It's a, just a great product at a good price. Check it out. Again, Star West Botanicals, uh, organic lemongrass is our item of the day. You can find it at thesurvivalpodcast.com. You go to T-SPAS to see the most recent reviews. This will be the, you know, if you're listening to this today, it'll be the most recent one. And you can also get the, the, uh, the exact, uh, directions to make the lemongrass 321 tea and the morning blend tea that both use this product. Uh, but give it a shot. And remember, if you shop online through T-SPAS, check out just the deals of the day over at Amazon or whatever, and do your shopping, you help the survival podcast no matter what you buy. And again, that now includes you guys that are in the UK and Canada, not just the United States. That brings us to our YouTube channel of the day. I'm going to go quick with today's channel. The guy that I'm featuring today actually has been on the Survival Podcast. He was on episode 1713 of the Survival Podcast. His name is Rex Tibor, and he was on about long-range shooting. Uh, his channel on YouTube is called Tibasaurus Rex. It's really cool. Kind of his featured video there. He's got a couple gals going from zero to deadly with the 6.5 Creedmoor in 10 minutes. The guy's got it going on. It's a good channel. Check it out again. It's called Tibasaurus Rex. And again, he was on talking about long-range shooting, episode 1713 of TSP. Links to his channel and the episode are in today's show notes for you. Uh, that brings us to our song of the day. Our song of the day I'm also going to be brief on today because i got a late start and I want to get wrapped up and get the show out to you guys. But it's called Taxman by the Beatles. No, it's called Taxman Mr. Thief by Cheap Trick. And I'll let the song speak for itself. It's pretty freaking clear. Here's an interesting thing that I found out, though. I was like trying to find backstory on this song, and I really couldn't find much on it. There is some references and homage to the Beatles on this song, and all of several of the songs on this, the album this song came from, which was Cheap Trick's debut album from, I think, 77 or 75, one or the other. Um, but the only thing I could find out when I was looking at, like, are they libertarians, what have you, um, was they were offered... $100,000 to play at the Republican convention in 2016. They said no. They then later said, maybe we should have said yes, but came out with uh, uh, guitars that shape like swastikas. So there you think. Okay, so you guys are like progressive Democrats then, like most people in entertainment. You think? I mean, I don't know. I can't find a damn thing about these guys politically at all. But this song sure as hell isn't for big government now, is it? Who knows? Who knows? And I think just the lesson there is, I don't know. And we have to always avoid that false dichotomy. 
Just because somebody says something negative about the Republicans doesn't mean they're pro-Democrat. And just because somebody says something bad about the Democrats doesn't mean they're pro-Republican. Maybe they actually think more like us, as in all these people suck, and the real future of humanity is true freedom, which neither side is for. With that, this has been Jack Spirigo with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.